Hey everybody, thanks for listening to this episode of My First Sketch. I'm Josh Hyam. If you haven't done so, you can subscribe to the show, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, I think. I'm sure it's on Amazon. Uh, get it automatically. It'd be really cool if you rate it five stars and leave a review on whatever platform you choose. Like the podcast on Facebook, facebook.com slash myfirstsketch. You can follow along on Twitter, but not many people use Twitter anymore. That feels... But head to myfirstsketch.com. I'll post any of the videos that we talk about from today's episode, any fun things I've come across, any questions, thoughts, recommendations, feel free to email me, josh at myfirstsketch.com. I'll get back to you as soon as I can, unless it gets sent to the spam folder, because that's been happening quite a bit. We're back with a new season of My First Sketch, so thanks for coming back and joining us again. I've still been hosting our online sketch open mic sketchy beta every month on zoom so if you've got some work that's not totally finished and you want to try it out head to sketchybater.com to learn more about that and if you haven't heard enough of my voice a couple of months ago i was a guest on sketch nerds the podcast from our friends in bad medicine giving tribute to the late norm mcdonald i think we highlight a lot of his best work from snl so check it out in fact here's an ad for sketch nerds are you a fan of sketch comedy like Monty Python, Key and Peele, and Saturday Night Live? Have you ever wondered why their sketches are funny? Or maybe why that certain sketch didn't make you laugh? On the comedy podcast Sketch Nerds, we aim to answer those questions while having fun talking about the history and craft of sketch comedy. Every episode features a guest to help us break down our favorite sketches, as well as those submitted by listeners like you. So come nerd out with us and listen to Sketch Nerds at badmedicinecomedy.com slash sketchnerds. Hey, I'm A.J. Schrader, and I believe everyone has a story worth telling, and also that I should potentially profit off of their stories. That's why I started the podcast I Wrote You a Pilot, where each episode I talk to a not-yet-famous person about their television interest and then make them read a television pilot I hastily wrote for them with the hopes of catching the eyes of the president of television. It's available on most major podcast platforms, or you can find out more directly at iwroteyouapilot.podbean.com. Today's guest is Rena Taylor, currently one half of Joy Provision. And actually, I realized shortly before we recorded that Rena was in one of the last shows I saw live at Toronto Sketchfest 2020 before the world shut down, where she performed her solo work as Rena Warrior Princess. Rena's first sketch is titled The Saddest Little Yankee Comedian. It's a character monologue where Rena reads the role of Susan Strongbot, the manager of an American comedian visiting a festival in Montreal. I read any of the visual information and action that you need to know, but Raina does all the heavy lifting. So let's get to the sketch. Susan Strongbot enters from backstage. She's on the phone yelling at an unknown party. She walks up waving at people as though she knows who they are, all the while demanding that their star get a fruit plate without watermelon, which is partial at lib. She gets on stage, pulls out a large book. I'm Susan Strongbot, manager to the stars. I must warn you that this unpleasant but necessary expose has been known to make people weep. It is possibly the saddest tale that you will ever have the great displeasure of hearing and I will ever have of telling you. This is a story about one of my clients, a brave, 
American comic whose identity has been changed to protect him and other names have been changed to protect him from slander. While this happens, she opens the book, blows dust off the cover, and pulls out the National Enquirer. She throws the book on the ground. This precious little golden boy of comedy, the prince of the golden roast, and all of the deliciously cruel comedic territory surrounding it, was once forced to endure the horrors of a foreign, barbaric, and desolate, desolate land, Canada. This is a tale of the saddest little Yankee comedian. She breaks emotionally, but finds strength and continues. Our story begins when the saddest little Yankee comedian received a call from his prestigious Hollywood agent. His attendance was requested at one of the most revered and celebrated festivals of this craft. It was the, but for the sake of laughter, comedy festival we are seemingly a part of. The little Yank's eyes glimmered as the softest, most beautiful of sentences was uttered so delicately over the phone. It's a filmed TV set with a live audience rehearsal. The money, the fame, and the recorded content he would be able to review alone in his hotel room between gigs were almost too much for him to fathom. All these images were swirling in his brain as he responded, yeah, sure, whatever, and hung up the phone. He knew better than to show weakness, eagerness, or even an emotional reaction to opportunity. Hollywood knows when you are not accommodated to success. As he put his phone down, his mind was racing, thinking of all the additional televised roast lineups he would surely be added to. No longer would he be a writer backstage, added for his cruelty alone on a roast for literally anyone. He would finally become the prince of the roast, overthrowing the ruling troll of insult comedy, Jeff Ross. The wee sad boy was doing well and was known for, in his own words, killing it too hard. Hashtag make comedy funny again. Yes, he was a roaster and he was good at what he did because he brought a truth to his work. He truly did believe that the majority of the world was populated by absolute garbage. And what do we do with garbage when we are otherwise uneducated or unsympathetic to our environment? We burn it. We roast it. Soon he arrived at the Pierre Elliott Trudeau Airport, a dismally small and wretched space in comparison to the glistening LAX. Their tiny sign sported the comfortable and correct color scheme to his Yankee taste, but was unfortunately adorned with a fedora. His thoughts streaked with the spiciest of roast bits. Perhaps he would be invited to roast Montreal in the grandest of galas. His mood was lifted once more. That was until he was guided towards a long, sinister black fan. His heart sank to the ground as he could see that they were stuffing multiple comedians into this vehicle. He was horrified. Was he meant to ride with the other performers? He darted towards a friendly volunteer and she cheerily informed him that the van would be traveling to the main hotel hub of the High End and then his hotel, the beautiful, Deltang Suites nearby. He stared flabbergasted. Once more, he was pummeled by disappointment in this putrid city. I will not be staying in the main hotel. The volunteer clutched at her board as he drilled his icy stare into her soul. 
He moved uncomfortably to her ear as he whispered, give me the address. I'm getting a fucking Uber and you best believe I am calling my manager. He stormed away, his phone in hand. Once at the alienated, disconnected, but objectively nicer hotel he was stationed at, he was greeted by another human. As she stated a title, he knew that this meant that this person was not garbage, but more of a bin to dump his demands and complaints. This one was paid to listen and had been appropriately informed of the treatment of the saddest little Yankee baby boy, Yankee doodle comedian. She stood with Uber reimbursement money in hand. He informed her this hotel was trash. After checking in and an extended steam in the hotel spa, he made the valiant decision to walk the streets of this foreign land because he was super brave and lacked a personal driver. Though the hotel was isolated, he could still hear the revelries and cries and absurd incoherent babble. He gazed out the window at the loudly colored street performers and clowns, creatures that still rely on their bodies for comedic purposes. He scowled at them and made his way down to the streets. The crowds on the main strip were huge. Large, terrifying lamps littered the sidewalks as the littlest comedian maneuvered through the biggest crowd he had ever seen. All of them nutso for comedy. Peasants, he screamed as he pushed through the crowd. I want to burn them as he shoved through their sweaty torsos. I want to roast them all. The oafs did not know the universal language of Hollywood, English. This made them inferior and embarrassing to be seen with. So he ran as fast as his tiny frame could carry his abnormally swollen head back to the hotel. Upon return to isolation station, he was reminded by the garbage bin that he, had, he must bring two outfits with him to the upcoming rehearsal. He frowned, lengthening his face even more so. The garbage bin had just made a demand of him. He did not enjoy demands in exchange for his creativity. When it was time for the comedians to gather to be shipped to the venue and the comedy fun bus, sad boy Yankee laugh maker arrived late and last. He was dressed but with no second change of clothing. The garbage bin looked deliciously alarmed. Oh, you needed to bring me a second outfit? Why? I like my outfit. He stated to her tactfully in front of the entire group. The producers need a choice in case the color is mismatched or a logo is distracting, the bin explained. No, I like this. I'll wear this. He glared at her, the corners of his mouth twisting upwards. The group of comedians shook their head, but the yank knew that they just didn't have the self-respect to take a stand. He knew their arms would soon fall heavy with the added weight of their stupid clothes. They tutted because they were nobody, worthless comedians comedians who had to follow the rules. They were probably from Toronto or somewhere else horrible. Well, that will have to do, the bin responded. It's time to board the bus for the venue. The group shuffled towards the bus like a herd of bison shifting towards slightly greener pastures. A voice was heard from behind them. You know what? Actually, I don't know if I like what I am wearing. The garbage bin and the group of wallers turned. Well, I fucking love what I'm wearing, but rules are rules. I'll go get my clothes. You call me an Uber, he said, and watched in bliss as the lowly, overworked, and partial slave labor administrator's knuckles whitened around her clipboard. Fuck the system, he thought to himself. 
after the show, which he killed, the little yank walked to the Hyant for the evening's schmoozing. The tiniest of sad yanks was energized as he was rejoined with his roasters, his gang of professional naysayers. They chided in the corner of the garish, desperate, desperation-soaked bar of the Hyant, discussing the items, demands, and the last-minute requests they threw at the festival. They laughed together at the idea of the staff prioritizing them to change a flight last minute, proudly waving around their massive talent. They giggled at the recent university graduates hired as administrators being jolted from their slumber at 4 a.m. by the sound of their drunken requests. It was then that the littlest comedian saw the garbage bin, only now leaving the JFL office at the Hyatt at nearly 2 a.m. She paused to catch her breath, checking her phone to ensure she didn't miss a request. She was tired. She was sad. She was the saddest little Canadian administrator. Her dreams of a career in Canadian comedy, a field she loved, crushed. Then, or so they say, the saddest little comedian's ego shrank three sizes that day. He saw at that moment that despite the horrors he endured here, that this paid job in the world, in this world, was ultimately to bring joy and laughter to people worldwide. He recognized that though asking for your fair wage is favorable and necessary for an artist, Exploiting organizations in neighboring countries didn't define his talent. He finally saw that his worth was not measured by the gifts he swindled, but the lives he touched. He acknowledged the privilege of being able to walk freely into this country, but with but a letter when his Canadian contemporaries can't even enter the States and perform without an L1 visa because they're not considered artists in Canada. He recognized that he had been offered an opportunity rarely given to, a Cana to Canadians, despite this being the only country where they can freely perform and the largest comedy festival in the world. He was a lucky little yank and his heart was exploding with love and gratitude. Then he shook his head, stupefied, but came to his senses as he knew what he had to do. He dialed his trusty manager and said somberly, I want a first-class upgrade for my flight home tomorrow. Fuck this festival. Susan Strongbot looks at her phone. Oh, that'll be him right now. I really do have to run. Susan mouths, thank you, and starts to make her way off the stage with her phone pressed to her face. Honey, no. Honey, why are you crying? They said you what? Is this a fucking picnic or a comedy show? Uh, so this feels, um, I'm, I'm going to say, is it torn from real life? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I had been an administrator on But the For Sake of Laughter Festival. I worked, <laughs> <laughs> I worked behind the scene um, at Camp Comedy, uh, being a, a camp comedy counselor. That's what it felt like, just wrangling up those silly comedians. Well, if you're going to call it Camp Comedy, <laughs> yeah. you're going to be a camp counselor. I'm a camp counselor. Like, there was a time where they're all goofing around in the lobby, and I remember saying, get on the bus, you turkeys, <laughs> and there was just not even, like, no questions asked. 
they were turkeys and I was wrangling them to their show. <laughs> it was great. They just like trusted me to keep them on track. Um, and so I was working for that festival the year prior. And then the next year I was in the festival and I was asked to perform sketch comedy. And I had done some stuff. I had mainly done improv, um, but I was on the, um, I, was, I was in the festival and I was very uh, nervous to kind of be, you know, uh, somewhat shit talking the festival, somewhat shit talking someone that had been a previous artist, but it so, was. So this is entirely yeah. based on. Yes. Now. Yeah. I'm, <sighs> I'm the saddest little Canadian administrator. Right. I mean, I assumed. Uh, <laughs> yeah. There's such a part of me that wants to know who. Oh yeah. Is I it, mean, is it yeah. someone that actually like succeeded and. I mean, they're doing fairly well. And so it, they, okay, so it is a name that yes. a comedy dork would know. Probably. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Okay. People don't know who I'm talking about for the most part when they're not like, yeah, comedy nerds like ourselves. Sure. Um, but when I say who it is, they're just like, oh my God, like he looks like a nightmare. <laughs> there is like, I don't, I'm not a violent person. I don't condone physical violence but there is an old subreddit that was called punchable faces and i would i would just submit i would submit the name at my most horrible moment but like people are like oh my god yeah he looks like a like angry little prince and i'm like and that's that's what he was so i decided to to make him into the saddest little yankee boy comedian uh, prince of the roast comedy i <laughs> i have a guess of who it would be do you want to guess I mean, if, if you're okay with me guessing. I'm okay. I'm the, okay with The it. first name that I think of as we go through the story is T.J. Miller. That is a pretty good guess. And like, similarly, for whatever reason, he was the first, yeah, like, <laughs> he was yes. the first thing that came to mind. Yeah, yeah, with like a trucker hat on. You're like, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'll have to go dig, dig into that subreddit of punchable faces and... <laughs> And trying to figure it out. You probably find them both. Probably find quite a few, a few comedians. I mean, <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Alan Jost named his book a, peri- a very punchable face. So, like, that's wonderful. That's self awareness, <laughs> and that's what we love to see. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you perform this at uh, what's the? I'm just gonna say JFL. Like, yeah. Uh, yeah. You perform this. How did it go? Uh, it went it went really well, and also my friend who I won't name her, but she was a previous producer and someone that I'd worked on. She actually came to come see the show, and she's like, "Cheeky, <laughs> cheeky, I see what you did there." And I'm like, "Ooh!" Like as soon as I saw her walk in, I was like, "We were friends already," but I'm like, mm, "Uh oh!" Like I, I didn't think this would be the show that one of them showed up at. So uh, here we go. Yeah. I suppose as long as that person, you know, as long as that comic didn't show up, like, hey. I don't even but know. I, they I, wouldn't have that self-awareness of. No, exactly. Like, they, they wouldn't be self-aware. They're like, whoa, that guy sounds hard to deal with. It's just like, I nicened this up so that <laughs> this would be palatable for other humans and could fit. Like the theme of the show is kind of like in sketch character mm-hmm. telling a story. Um, and so everyone kind of like, this is more dressed up. It's sketch comedy, but it's dressed yeah. up as more of a storytelling. Almost well. that um, that Buddy Cole like influence of like yep. where yeah, yeah, you're fully in character and it's just regaling us yeah. with that amusing thing. Yeah, absolutely. 
and I think that was even like my retelling now I think when I did it it was just like Susan Strongbot manager to the stars was just like horrified just like to the audience like can you believe and I think that I took out like they were all speaking like they didn't speak the universal language of Hollywood English but like I think I took out something about like them being like filthy Frenchmen and stuff like because you're just like well I don't want to alienate the people that are surrounding me right now that's not the aim here right like (laughs) yeah just because this dude might have said something like that oh yeah he was like they're all speaking fucking French out there I'm like what are you (laughs) you don't want to have that like that glimmer of oh yeah I'm actually saying this to you like no no I'm (laughs) this dude like I'm just chilling what this dude said no 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 I mean this yeah yeah Yeah, because uh the French sometimes are just like my what (laughs) that the what so ask what the fuck like no (laughs) um when when was this when did you perform this this? back in I started sketch like pretty late so this was just like I think 2018 was when I did this okay yeah Gotta yeah. find someone that performed at JFL 2017. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is gonna be like a scavenger hunt. Like, I want people to actually try to figure this out. Yeah, yeah. He's <laughs> little. He's he's legitimately little. I that's I didn't stress. Okay, so it's not okay, TJ Miller's a, a giant dude. He's a tall dude. Yeah. All right. Uh, so 2018, you're starting doing sketch after doing some improv and stand up beforehand. I uh, haven't done stand-up at that point Oh, no, stand-up. Either. Okay, just, just yeah. improv and stuff. So let's go all the way back before we get, like, what were you into? Like, what was your, like, comedy fandom growing up? What what made you laugh? Yeah, um, I grew up in a really heavy sketch household, actually. Like, my dad w- loved Second City. He loved, um, like, Monty Python's. We grew up with that. Like, I've seen all of their sketches at this point and then kids in the hall was also like trickled in though that was a little bit later than mm. when my dad was kind of into that and then other like various comedy albums like dog and, uh, Doug, bob and doug mckenzie from second uh from um yeah second city tv but they would do like comedy albums and stuff mm-hmm. like that so i grew up with watching so much comedy watching a lot of like british television my parents liked that a bit more um so absurdity really spoke to me as a kid um and we also we got a video camera and we were learning like you know those like basic things of like we're doing magic look that item is gone and you just like have one of you with the camera I grew up in a family of four so you have you have a whole creative team which is amazing (laughs) (laughs) and it was just like someone in front of the camera you know like someone moving the item and we would just like screw around with stuff like that and we actually made um our own version of and now for something completely different when we were kids and so it was just like us transferring from like sketch to sketch and we couldn't do editing. So we just, everything had to be like planned out. You pause the filming, oh. you do a transition where you say, and now for something completely different. And we would do it in silly ways. Like one's like my brother, like revving up like a mini bike that he had. He's like, and now for something completely different. And then like wheelies out, out of the frame. And we were all like, I think it was like eight, 10. I'm the youngest. So everyone was kind of like in that, that, like early or like range and and we just went nuts with videos so uh, yeah 
like I didn't have a camera growing up. So whenever, like, I, I think I worked at a camp or something. I had a camera and we, we, and it was this winter retreat where I'm not even gonna say half. I'm gonna say like 90% of the people went skiing and like 10% of us stayed back at the camp because like skiing sound dangerous. So we just <laughs> made like a little like video. And it was at that point where like you had to edit in video because clearly I don't have, like, I didn't have anything with me because I'm right. 14. So we're like, <laughs> yeah. all right, so we, we gotta start, we gotta do this. And then we got to run over here and do like, yeah. I don't, kids today will not understand how obnoxious that was to do like all your editing. And like, when you're trying to be silly on camera, having to do it all right the first time or rewinding and going back and like, ugh. yeah, but yeah. 100%. And we can only just then think back and be like, well, thank God it wasn't on film. And we had to like legitimately like slice. Yeah. you know legit film and then tape it together that's like our one advantage to having <laughs> right. like the home video kind of feel but it was like it was the most fun thing that we had and our neighbor we had neighbor friends that grew up in the country in rural Ontario and Canada and uh, we had neighbor kids that then we would get in on it and uh, like just ridiculous scenes where like even you as an actor like there is one where like the girl didn't know how to stop the recording and so you could just hear it from behind like I can't I don't know how like help and then I was in character and I was like you have to push the big red button and I was just like staying in character and so now to this day we still are close with uh with our neighbors but we'll say like you push the big red button Oh gosh! I think I don't know what accent I was doing, but we were just we were all like kids in the country with so much time on our hands, and you can't just like go over to a bunch of people's places like you would in in town or a suburb. You just got to make your own fun. Yeah, and so absolutely. We did that. Yeah, and and when you have a camera at your disposal, what's more fun? Yeah, like, a lot of people start that way, and you know, kind of a little jealous that it. I <laughs> yeah yeah it's brought me to such heights <laughs> yeah give me that early start I, like i'm always curious about uh with canadians and i don't like how much british comedy gets imported because i don't think we get i mean now in the world of youtube where i literally just spent the entire morning watching qi and like <laughs> other british shows like a good use of your morning <laughs> In my childhood, not much was imported from Britain. Like the, our PBS, our public, like our public stations down here mm-hmm, would mm-hmm. do like, um, are you being served? Uh, Last of the Summer Wine. Like yeah. almost like those old people, like they felt like old people comedies. So the yeah. day that Mr. Bean showed up on our PBSs was like revelatory. Like. <laughs> yeah. Like this is like holy crap! They actually do make something for like young people. Like, yeah, like I didn't even it. know Monty Python very well at that point. Like, mm-hmm. so were you more aware of British stuff other than like Monty Python as a kid growing up? Um, yeah, I would say that in terms of like Canadian content and what we see, like I grew up with like zero television apart from Bunny Ears, so it was whatever you know right. we could pick up. So what, like, you know, CBC, Canadian Broadcasting Corporation is like, you know, our public television, we have a couple, um, but that would feature and they would program British content. Um, 
because there is just that like you know a- affiliation to the queen you know yeah. we're just like we're still part of the monarchy she's um, she's still there she's still looming over you guys <laughs> she's still in any of our like post offices her portrait is up um so we we had the british influence but i would say that like in my household pretty specifically and where like how my dad grew up he grew up with more british humor and his like siblings and him engaged in more like either canadian or um british humor mm. and then that really translated in in our household and we watched like not as much sketch but there's like faulty towers i was introduced which is like still you know just a spinoff um and then like just bbc shows that i really liked that had kind of like that super punchy element in that writing like father ted like i really enjoyed a lot more of that um style i feel like in, in our household we did um and and i'm not sure that it was like i just felt like I later started to enjoy and really develop a taste for like American absurdism, which is like kind of like yelly and silly, but like mm. not as like we're being serious and now something crazy is happening, you know, yeah. like, like, whereas we, we kind of adopt that very straight man in an, in a ridiculous circumstance. Um, but it, my, my dad in particular, I think that like, American comedy didn't really do it for him that often, or there'd be like certain individuals, but yeah. Yeah, it's it's so wild to think how much difference there is between American versus Canadian versus British, like, and depending on your influences at those times, like, completely can yeah. change your like the wiring of what you think is funny. Like, I mean, yeah, I'm sure a ton of our American sitcoms came up to Canada. And yeah. they they must feel weird versus Canadian stuff. Like, yeah, like I was, I find this really funny um, in terms of like how I grew up and how like arbitrary the rules were of like censorship in my household. Mm. Like I was the youngest of four. So by the time I came around, they're just like, I don't fucking care. Like just, just watch whatever you want. That, that was kind of with me too. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, in my house, if we had like we would get like dvd disc sets also at that point like when i was like i don't know we were probably getting those by the time i was like 10 or something like that like dvds were becoming big at that point um it was okay for me to be watching south park it was not okay for me to be watching friends like my dad would legit get like come in the room and be like turn that garbage off that is sugar-coated garbage that is not good television i don't want you watching that but south park was like he was at least he like thought there was some political themes or something like that and good commentary. So we were like learning. That's so interesting of like censorship based on quality. Like, yeah. I I I love that idea. Like yeah. of this yeah. like oh no 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 oh I I've got nothing morally wrong with it. It's just oh like yeah. it's just not good writing. <laughs> I think I did that to my nephew once. I was like no don't no. Mm-mm. <laughs> Watch something else, like, not that. Like, yeah, like not the Big Bang Theory, please. <laughs> to all of them, to everyone that loves it. I just didn't grow up with the American sitcom being like part of my life whatsoever. But I know that like anyone that grew up on a show just knows that it's just like the formula or the fundamentals. Whereas that is so foreign mm. and weird to me. 
I didn't like my favorite shows growing up were like Simpsons, Malcolm in the Middle. Um, actually, weirdly, This Hour is 22 Minutes, the Canadian like political sketch comedy show when I had like Rick Mercer on like initially. Um, like I didn't really, I don't know. I like the big laughter. Even as a kid, you're like, that's not funny. It, well, yeah, because um, it's all fake. It's all ghosts <laughs> yeah. stuff. Like, it, okay, so you mentioned Rick Mercer and I'm very curious about him because when I was in high school back in like 2000, 2001, he had a, a it's, I hate calling it a sitcom because whenever I say sitcom, I picture that four camera staged thing. But yeah. Made in Canada is not a sitcom because it's a single camera. Is it Made in Canada or the industry? Oh, he, he you, had a might show. Be, you might be out acknowledging me on he, my uh, own Canadian comedy, which <laughs> I'm furious about. <laughs> he had a show, uh, I'm going to say like 2001, 2003, like somewhere around there, where he played an executive in an entertainment company. And they, they had a TV show that was kind of like, the TV show was a parody of Anna Green Gables. Oh uh, I, I forget what it was called. Yeah, like it was like it was like Beaver Creek or something like that. Anyway, like, <laughs> but it so confused me as a kid growing up with the American system, where every sitcom had twenty something episodes a season. The show, which I think had a different title in Canada versus America, I think it was the industry down here and called Made in Canada up there. Nice. There's only six episodes for the season, and that was it. And I was like, wait, what? Like. How do you how do you yeah. do that? That's... Like there's eight part series that now has kind of been normalized everywhere, which I think was been more of a British television. Well, exactly. Format. And I didn't know that yeah. either. Like, so when like the season was over, I was like, that that was it? Like <laughs> I, I should have a full year of this. Like, but it was it was Rick Mercer, and I'm not gonna remember any of the other like actors' names, but he, the, there was a tagline at the end of the episode where it was like, I think that went well, but he was like an absolutely evil character that was like yeah. it was it was great and I wish I could find it I wish it was streaming I wish it was like somewhere but then I find out that Rick Mercer is basically like you were Jon Stewart doing this hour is 22 minutes and doing that political fake news kind of stuff like yep yep yeah and he was like he was I love that he played a villain or someone that's like you know an anti-hero or whatever just like can't really fully get behind because he was super sassy and that's what like I even as a kid I loved his rants I weirdly was just like this guy's going off and it's like these aren't the silly sketches but like you pick up on enough as a kid you're like mm -hmm. oh so like because he was really like he wasn't afraid to be like why the heck would that happen and you're like oh that's got me asking questions why would that happen I don't know is it yeah my parents are just terrified they're like oh no our like five-year-old is becoming politically engaged this is not a good <laughs> and a little too young, for that. it's just like we're too we're, we're gonna be too old by the time that she's like full-fledged <laughs> feminist <laughs> little did they know yeah um so I always I you know when I talk about American stuff with Canadians I always ask about Saturday Night Live because mm -hmm. that's the juggernaut of sketch comedy down here yeah. do you have um a favorite SNL cast member? Whew. Like, uh, I feel like every every woman is gonna say uh, like Gilda Radner or like Kristen Wiig to me though was just like at the perfect time when when it was total peak Kristen Wiig. 
um, with Bill Hader, with Andy Samberg. Like I was like at the end of my high school career and like that's when it was like really good. Like I remember my friend Andy and I, every Monday after the weekend, we'd come into a drama class and be like, what did you think? You know, and like, like, and I, she just really blew my mind how versatile she was and how she could bring, like she could do such an incredible impersonation, but then bring this additional layer of like absolute silliness so that you could not help. It didn't matter who it was. You were laughing at the character. Like there would never be an excuse of like, well, they're not a funny person. She would find a way to make it funny. And I just thought that like her, Maya Rudolph, like kind of interchangeably those two and them working together was some of my, my favorite moments in time on SNL. Um, Cause it was just like, yeah, just such a range of characters and she played well off of everyone. So she's really, She's pretty top notch for me. Yeah, yeah she big. like, yeah, she's she's great. Like, uh, the stuff that she's done afterwards, like Barb and Star, at, like Go to Vista del Mar, like where she's just just bananas like throughout. It's yeah. it's fantastic. Like, yeah, Kristen yeah. When great. she gets to go off, and I'm glad that like she's like any continued recognition that she was getting, I was just like, yeah, yes no, this person give them a movie like 100. They will carry it. Like she's carried. Yeah. Not carried the cast. She did for a while after a lot of like Will Forte and people left. Oh, she whatnot. was the star yeah. of like, yeah. at least a couple seasons that she was yeah. there. But like, yeah, when when she was cast as the cheetah in the that you know Wonder Woman movie, I was like, I don't know anything about this, but yeah, absolutely, let's do it. <laughs> yeah. She can do it. It's fine. Whatever. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, she's a fucking cheetah. Yeah. Yeah. It's it. Kristen Wiig. I'll watch her do yeah. anything. It's fine. Yeah. Even <laughs> uh, though the cheetah, even if it's not her that you're watching. Yeah. I don't I don't care if it's a CGI Kristen Wig. CGI Kristen Wig's still better than not Kristen Wig. Just CGI, but she's just in a cheetah costume, just like green screened over everything. I want to yeah. watch that. Great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm bored. <laughs> so okay, you mentioned uh drama class and stuff. So and and you know, doing the videos and stuff, like was performing always a part? Was that always a thing for you? Yeah. Yeah. I really, it wasn't ever like, I don't know, I've never, um, I think why I do comedy, why I do stand up is that I've never had high self-esteem. Um, so as a, a young kid, it was always something that I had like a complete fascination with, like I would, I was a constant story writer. Um, and I was always like writing little plays. And um, then I wrote my first, I wrote a French play in grade five that weirdly one of my teachers was like we're going to produce this this is going to be a production that we're going to do as French practice you wrote an entire and because I just came to her and I was like I wrote this play it was about bullying and it was called um, but that means like do make the right choice do the right thing and I, I didn't know who fucking Spike Lee was like <laughs> this white kid from Canada that's like yeah like I'm gonna do this <laughs> which is ludicrous but um I like wrote and directed that she let me direct it which is this is really wild to like think back on at such an early age um and was this then, all in class or did people actually come to see this in class but then we presented to the entire school like every oh. French class, every French class in our school. Cause like when you grow up in rural Canada and you're learning French, you have the same class for your, for mm. life. That's just your French class. Yeah, yeah. 
they're shipped in from how far away like you've seen how expansive Canada is with the population we have ship those kids in bring them to the school and um it was just like one class pretty much per grade and so everyone that was at the school that I was at that was three to six they all came filled the auditorium because the English kids wouldn't have understood you know they were just exceptional but okay so you say you had like you know that minor self-esteem thing you were okay with putting like doing this like putting yourself (laughs) out there like that like the best part is is that like I cast my bullies as the bullies in the play. Sure. Like, I'm like, you're perfect for it. And they're like, oh my God, (laughs) thanks, Rena. And I'm like, yeah, no, I wrote this pretty much for you. You are perfect for the role. (laughs) You see, you're playing the bitch. Um, um, Yeah, I think I just kind of like, it's always, I, I feel like a theme throughout my life and something that I'm trying to just kind of step out of creatively now. Um, and believe in myself to ask for opportunities is that I truly throughout my life kind of like opportunities have come and it's just like oh well every time I'm like whoa you want me to do that like yeah, that's yeah. my like reaction it's like holy shit thank you so much like that's wild that you would think of that I just wanted to like I think I was such a nerd I'm like maybe if I do this for a writing assignment I'll get extra marks sure. you know and she was like we're gonna produce this I'm like oh whoa <laughs> what I expected. Did, did you get extra marks <laughs> like did it like and it was just like you know like in terms of French acquisition of a language at 10 years old when it's not your first language um writing a play could be a pretty good like application of knowledge yeah. <laughs> you'd be like yeah no I think that she's like under grasps the basic concepts of the language yeah, yeah I don't think so. I could have done it in, in my Spanish class like I took you know four years of high school Spanish and I don't think I could write it <laughs> same for me in Spanish I'm like I'm a little jealous I'm like that's a that's a nice it's a it's a fun language French is like here's all these rules Oh, but wait, here's all the exceptions because one of the kings didn't like uh, the way that it sounded. So you have to memorize it just based on what some whiny monarch uh, preferred. It must be kind of like learning English, like where, oh yeah, that letter sounds like this, but this, and also this, and it could sound like like that that joke of the, uh, that uh, I Love Lucy joke of the O-U-G-H where there's like a, like a scene where it's like Ricky doesn't understand that it's uh, through tough call, like all the yeah. different ways that, that those letters are pronounced. And he's just like, yeah, yeah. You guys are stupid. Like and, yeah. <laughs> stupid, you stupid, non-English speaker, you <laughs> frail minded. <laughs> so where, so as a, you know, drama class in, in high school and everything, where do you get the start to, I, I guess start doing improv. I think you said improv was first. Yeah, I started doing improv in high school. Um, is this like a, all right? I talked to people in Alberta. Is this like a class thing in in school, like a school sponsored club thing? It's not a sponsored club. It's like truly by like there, there's um there's something in in Canada that I worked for as well um, that a lot of regions would uh, do like a competition kind of thing. Yeah, Canadian yeah. improv games. So we had that was like the version. And so in grade nine, I auditioned for the improv uh, team 
and it was for Canadian improv games. We were going to go to regionals and stuff like that. Uh, but we also had to embarrass ourselves in front of the entire school uh, during Christmas concerts and stuff like that. Um, and so I started doing improv then. Then my teacher lost, like, lost her mind on us after a bad performance in front of the school. <laughs> and she, like, just, like, had a bit of, there's other stuff going on, um, but she, like, lost it on the boys ran away and then it was just myself and the only other girl that were left and she's just like you did horribly and we're like why why is this happening and why did we stay and like those boys running away was the right move and so we 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 didn't have improv um she didn't want to do it anymore and so we just didn't have improv in our school for the next two years and then come grade 12 um I loved my one drama teacher, but she was always preoccupied with like the musical or the major production would happen every year. So we got another drama teacher who's very skilled, Miss um, Vanderblut or yeah, Van Bluten, something like that. There's a lot of Dutch names uh, <laughs> up in Canada. Um, and she was like, uh, I approached her and I was like, I really, I want to get improv back really badly. Mm. Um, and so she was sponsored it. Yeah, she was like, you know, yeah, the, the teacher for it. And she had had a lot of background uh, in improv herself. Um, and so then what I did was instead of like, I didn't like that there was just like the team and then you couldn't do improv if you didn't make it, even though I made it in grade nine, it was like, that didn't feel fair or good. So I made an improv club and then I made like from the club, mm. you auditioned to get into the team. And then we had an A and a B team. So we had two different teams that were going to regionals. And from what I hear, cause I later in life in Montreal helped produce the Canadian improv games, like tournament that went on. Um, I found out from someone who was from my region that was coming over, uh, to help like adjudicate and stuff like that. He was like, yo, like center Wellington district high school, my old high school, they're like, they're incredible contenders. They're so strong. And they come each year and they're like one of our main, or they're one of the main groups that like people know as being like a really strong school. So it's really, it felt really good to just know that it was something I missed. It was something mm. that I, I, I gained so much from um, and that it's continued just like this is like how, like 15 years ago that they're still good and going. That just like made my heart sing. Or you could look at it that you almost single-handedly destroyed it, <laughs> but, then you, but then you planted the seeds again that like three years later. So, yeah, we were so bad. We broke penance. a human and, and then I had to like, I'm like, I was just mulling on it for the next two years. <laughs> yeah, I love that. <laughs> so, uh, so starting improv, like, and you you mentioned, you know, growing up in Ontario. When does the move to Montreal happen? Um, so I originally moved to Toronto. Oh, you um, started? Yeah, and I went to I went to theater school. Unfortunately, um, I went to theater school. That then I did like concurrent education, so I did my education degree at the same time. Um, and uh, theater school was not for me for me like mm. I really I loved learning about like I loved creating plays there's so many elements I loved of it but it was really really like we are not doing film acting we yeah. are doing theater acting this is for the live stage only and everything was geared towards more drama so we really got no like they, we had one unit of improv and that was where I was like I'm fucking happy. Like I'm finally happy again. Um, because it was just so 
so intensely dramatic and that kind of like big breathy acting, you know, theater, thespian. And it really turned me off from it. So theater school is actually why I stopped performing for kind of an extended period of time. Mm. And uh, I, I just truly didn't feel, I didn't fit in in that realm truly, or I, it didn't, it wasn't my passion. And then I had no opportunity to be doing comedy really. Like even though it was in Toronto, um, I just kind of like hadn't yet. I had like a dark age where I, I just didn't do a lot of performance. I mean, know? I'm sure I- like, were you aware of the opportunities that Toronto had? Yeah, 100%. Okay, so it just wasn't, okay. I did Second City, like, there's things, there's a couple of things that got me into, like, then what, what I now do and really, like, sparked my interest, and, like, Mm -hmm. I'd always, like, we'd gone to see Second City in high school and stuff like that, and it's very strong in Toronto, and, um, when we went in high school, there was just, like, people are, like, oh, Rena, this is what you yeah. you should go and do. You go do this. And so I think that I was just like, I took one of their classes. I was just a poor kid. And I really didn't want to ask. Um, like at that time, my mom was very ill and we ended up like losing her, which is probably part of like the dark age of no performance and stuff like that. Um, so truly just asking like, Dad, can I borrow like $350 to go do like more improv courses? Yeah, to- just didn't... Totally understandable. Like, yeah, like that, 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 I don't want to call it gatekeeping necessarily, but like where so many of those opportunities that are available, like do come with a cost. Absolutely. Like, it was like doing another university degree to go yeah. through all of the five levels. Um, Cause I remember when I was doing like, you know, sketch one-on-one down here at the one theater, my dad's like, are you getting college credit for this? I was like, what? No. How do you not understand that? Like, <laughs> I was like, no, it's, this just like is... a, it's just like a course outside of an institution. Yeah. Dad, this happens all the time. Yeah, I was like, <laughs> yeah, no, this is just for fun, I guess. Like, <laughs> he's like, wait, but well, what's the profitability? What are you going to get? What's your output? Right. Yeah, oh, yeah, like yeah. so. <laughs> yeah, so I um, I did a second city like first level. Um, I loved my teacher Lisa Merchant. Uh, we both kind of knew that like this introductory level was not. Like, she's like, I you do you've done improv. Yeah. I hadn't done it in many years at that point, but it was like, oh, okay. So the basics, you know, this is going to be a repeat for you, but it was still so helpful. I still gained yeah. so much from that class. And also working with people that are like, I don't know, I do marketing and, and I'm scared to talk in front of groups. You're like, yeah. <laughs> you're doing improv with those sweetie pies, you know, like it's a, it's a, you're only as good as your team, you know? Yeah. And, and, I think that is one of the, the the benefits of doing like the comedy class thing is meeting with the new people, working with new people, understanding like, oh yeah, you might understand, like you might've watched Silent Live your entire life, but like this person's going to show you something different that you've never experienced before. Or like, so, you know, maybe having a classmate is actually, you know, a super positive thing. So yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah and it, this is also like the people that like, are interested in this and those are the like that's going to be your audience as well for the most part people that like adore comedy but maybe feel like that step in between and they also want to dip their toes so gain like just learn like meeting a bunch of different types of people not always working with like the best and the most elite yeah is is awesome because it all it asks is that you are your best and you're looking out for your teammates and that's what like I did a lot of sports growing up and improv to me was just like it was an it was another team for activity it was another team sport in a way yeah. and and you really wanted to elevate everyone and make sure that you all could close the scene out together have the most fun and and value one another which is uh 
I really appreciate that part and that element of improv. So with doing Second City and coming out of that dark period of not performing, uh, what's next? What's next up for you? Yeah, so I came across, I didn't really know, this is so dumb. I didn't really know what sketch comedy was. I didn't know that it was called sketch comedy. I then saw that there was like, there's the Toronto Sketch Comedy Festival. And then I looked into like what their their description and there's like, it's not drawing. It's you know, <laughs> like this silly thing. They're like, it's, it stands up or sorry. It's like, it's comedy. It's scripted comedy that you're seeing live. And I'm like, oh my, oh my God. Like everything that I grew up on, it has a freaking there's a, name. There's a thing. <laughs> it's a real thing. <laughs> and you don't have to like go to theater school. Like I'm like, mama me, if I'd only known. Um, like, so I volunteered for the Toronto Sketch Comedy Festival. Um, and loved it uh and always and but was like I'd been off the stage for long enough that I was just like I saw people like Templeton Philharmonic and I was like oh oh my god like it was like permission it was like I could do that with like my best friend I would go on stage and go do that you finally like saw it reflected and it's like yes it's like we're all just white women you know that are doing comedy but like still there was so many dudes still at that point at like 11 or 12 or whatever um and so I volunteered for it and then a couple of years later I think I volunteered a couple of years um really ended up like liking and and getting to know some people from the scene and stuff like that and then I went to school for my postgraduate which was in uh, arts administration cultural management and I did my I had two interns that I needed to do or internships and I just like everyone was going for like all of our galleries here or like big like cultural centers and I was like Toronto Sketch Comedy Festival please let me be your intern um and so I worked for them and then my second internship was working for Just for Laughs that brought me over to Montreal Mm -hmm. okay yeah yeah and Montreal is where then I found um I don't know if you've ever been or been to Montreal Sketch Fest but there's Théâtre Saint-Catherine Theatre Saint-Catherine that community there I, I think just kind of like saved my life in a lot of ways they had free improv every Sunday, a class, and then the show, and just being able to, on like, you know, poor working in the arts person's budget. And constantly be able to flex your muscle like that, like, yeah, it's so helpful, for sure. Yeah, just getting up every week, and it being like, there's people from like all over the world, there's like French speakers that are trying to get better at English, so sometimes you're just like, you're doing mime scenes a lot, (laughs) but like, you're with such a variety of skill levels again. So when you go to, to Montreal and, and work for Just for Life and do like these improv things, like how much is in English? How much is in French? Like, Yeah. So for them, they have um, Sunday night improv that's in English. And then they have um, Les Lundi, which is improv in French on Monday. Lundi is Monday. Yeah, so there's um, two. Yeah. So they have two separate kind of occasions. But I would go and challenge myself and go do the French class Absolutely. sometimes. Absolutely. Yeah. And then they would do the same. So there is this really unique crossover. And then at the other, at Montreal Improv that I worked at as well, um, they had French and English classes. And there was often like, people would do bilingual shows quite often in Montreal. So you would get the mix and like, most of the audience, like even like Anglophones, when, when you're in a French region for a while and we all have like the basic, you learn a bit of basic French throughout school. When you're there, like, even if you don't speak a word of it, you're pretty good at understanding French. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Because you just absorb and you kind of like, you know, emotional reactions, variety of things. So yeah, I did. And I've done like I did a bilingual play in Montreal uh, where you're like throughout the words or just how they do like come on switcher, on dit on switcher entre les deux langues, you speak English, speak French. The play was written like that. Um, so there's a lot of opportunity to just kind of get better in both, which was nice. Very cool. I had mentioned before we started recording that I I had seen you perform when I went up to Toronto in 2022 before, you know, the, the world caught on fire and no <laughs> one could breathe on each other. Um, yeah. And like, so yeah, the, the idea that you were one of the last people I saw perform comedy for like a year and a half, like in person, was, was a, like a, I'm sorry. A, a shock to the system. I was like, oh my gosh, I have seen her perform. That was so long. Like, uh, I know. So what brings you back to Toronto and, and where we are today? Yeah. So um, I, I, I was in a sketch troupe um, called Ricky in Montreal that I love very much. Um, but then I think, weirdly like I don't know I don't know if it's like intuition or something or there's just like a couple of things I wanted to get my full teaching certificate which I was finding very difficult to do from um, Quebec because there's different regulations mm. and I needed to come into the office here in Toronto just kind of found myself needing to relocate back to Toronto and since I'm from Ontario originally it was just closer to family and I felt like kind of an, uh, a want to be closer to to family as well which was good because then the following year we all went into extreme lockdown and I could go, I went and stayed with my dad for a bit because he lives in the woods and it was very, you know, very privileged to be able to have done that, but it was like an escape from pandemic and everything. Um, but then when I moved back to Toronto, didn't have a sketch partner, decided to do solo sketch. So that was Rena warrior princess. And then I had my best friend from theater school who had similarly been kind of like, you know, disillusioned uh, in terms of wanting to perform in theater and pursue that. And I convinced him to be my director, uh, very sneaky. And then eventually um, I was like, would you ever want to perform on stage? And now um, he is my sketch writing partner in our group that we have joy provision who has been, we our inaugurate or our inaugural performance was, the digital Toronto Sketch Comedy mm -hmm. Festival last year, and uh, they asked us to join them again. So we're doing it, and uh, we're hopeful to just kind of like get ourselves back on stage because that's actually a forte for both of us. Um, is live performance? It's something we're we're well versed in. So video has been kind of a pivot for us, but it's where we were born, and now, yeah, excited to get on the stage with it. So Joey Provision has not done a live stage show yet. No, not us. No, wow. we both have done our own. Like he's been in Edinburgh Fringe Festival. He's got his own accolades. He did like all of the Second City training. Great performer. We just like just haven't. There's, no, there's no sketching it. No, that, that's so wild to to think. Like, um, as much as the pandemic has killed a lot of like comedy for a long time, like you know, in, in terms of like live performance and stuff, and the idea of like everyone did like zoom sketches for like six months and no. I'm tired of it. Yeah. Like I, like I, I, I watched almost all of last year's Toronto digital yeah. festival, but at a certain point I was pulling my beard out because of all the, like the different like zoom, like, 
Like, I know this is the new language that we're all like speaking yeah. in, but oh, come on. Like, it was just, yeah, it, it became overkill for a while. Like, like that constant reminder, like, oh, right. yeah. like, and that constant reminder of like, oh, yeah, the world's not normal. Like, this is, no. this is what we're all doing now. Like, as yeah. I talk to you on Zoom. Yeah, um, this is a unique escapism that we have, but just to be reminded just yeah. of how bizarre things uh, are. But like yeah. the idea that of like, I mean, I don't know how much joy provision has worked or like the, the idea of like, of the two of you doing your first stage show is exciting. Like, yeah, like these new projects that, that have been born out of this is super exciting. Yeah. Like, yeah. And it's so, like baby steps for, for him and I, because I think similarly he needed to fall back in love with performance and doing it his own way. And I think that that's what I love about sketch comedy is that like, it doesn't have the weird confines or the weird like culture with a capital C connotations of like kind of traditional theater styles, but is a theater show. When you look at the amount of work that goes into it, the need for having like tech and everything like that, prepared and it is it, the same as a theatrical production which is why it always weirds me out when there's no fen- funding in like the canadian scheme for sketch comedy it's just like oh that's just comedy that's like yeah. what, what do you need for that and you're like the same as you need for a play and you're doing a, a reproduction of another shakespeare show yeah. when we created completely new canadian content in a field that we are well known for globally sketch comedy from Canada is well revered. Like it just, it, it continues to blow my mind that there's that kind of oversight or that weird, that barrier um, that when someone's trying to make you laugh, it doesn't necessitate skill or it's just right. silly or, or they just do it for the joy of it. We're joy provision. We're providing you joy. <laughs> don't give us anything. We don't want your money. Please. Is that is that where that comes from? Like the, the name joy, provide jo- joy. Yeah. Well, is that- also, we we met in university in the first week because I had a joy division bag, okay. and we were both fun little like uh, uh, wouldn't like kind of the traditional sense of the word emo, not the like pop punk, yeah. <laughs> very weird hair one that came. We were both um, uh, lovers of like new wave music and stuff like that. So he came up and he's like, "I like your bag," and I'm like, "Oh, whoa, <laughs> this man is just like very like mm-hmm, I like that," and I'm like amazing i like you and we've been best friends ever since and yeah, so it seems, our... that, it seems the joy division is one of those bands that like when you find another fan of it like you just latch like you're like oh you're a snob too we're this is gonna be great <laughs> yeah <laughs> um so yeah so joy provision has a video in toronto's digital festival this year yeah um is the, is there a timetable to get back on stage together we would really love to like, we would love to go back to Montreal. And I would also just love to um, to go back to the festival because I ran it for two years uh, and then helped out in the, the year before that. Um, it's a festival that's very dear to my heart. It's one of my favorite sketch comedy festivals. I love Toronto very much. Uh, Montreal is just like a different flavor. It's very like, it's very like, it's, it's very Montreal, like it's scrappy. Mm-hmm. It's like rough and ready, but so much fun. So we would love to be able to go do it there. And if not, um, if you build it, they will come. We strongly believe that we can put on our own show, book a space. We know how to do that. 
hell, that's our schooling. So <laughs> where other people got like accounting skills and like, you know, you know, really important life skills. We know how to put on a show, damn it. So it's going to happen at some point. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The spear. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see if we all survive and uh, then we'll do show. Um, as like, as we wrap up, uh, I always ask people the same last two questions, get a little bit deeper, not necessarily crying deeper, but like, um, so, uh, you've done classes, you've done improv since high school. Uh, is there something that you would, that you've learned doing comedy that you would pass on to a new writer? Like if, if someone fresh out of a sketch 101 class, like what's a piece that you would tell them? Um, if it's not working, kill the idea, baby. Uh, I think that like, that's my, my first serious point that I would give someone is that your brain is fully capable of creating wonderful and beautiful new ideas. And if you find that you're getting frustrated or if it's just not the right piece for a group that you're working with or a partnership in particular, put it to the side, move on to something that feels like it's flowing more. Um, and just like, I, like, it's the idea baby because people treat their ideas like it's a beautiful, precious object that can't be insulted and can't be questioned. You know, like, how dare you talk about my child that way? Yeah. It's not, it's just a thought that came into your head and you're going to have a billion other beautiful ones. So kill the idea baby if it's not working. And then also just like, everyone had to start. There is the only separation between where you are starting out and someone that has been, you know, that's more well-established is just a lot of time and effort put into it. So take whatever steps necessary to, to get yourself on stage and believe, believe in yourself and believe that you can co- contribute something, you know, everyone can. Yeah. Um, I always like that, that kill your idea, baby thing is always something that's like, that I always ignore, like to my own detriment, <laughs> like there's certain things in, in my notebook that I'm just like, uh, I, I was talking to uh, a couple of people that they were saying that there was a that they had a, a writing exercise where someone else had to pitch an idea and then someone would steal would use that idea and they would write it instead and I like I completely I was like but that's my idea that, that's mine like you can't have it <laughs> like so I made the joke I I was like it. oh if I had that like thing it would be like uh something about a talking dog maybe like I would just make make up <laughs> this fake idea that I don't want to uh want to do yeah and then finally, um, I mean, you mentioned a bit about like how f- theater school felt weird, um, yeah. you know, with that reliance on drama, which I totally understand. Uh, yeah. So why comedy? Why is comedy like an overarching piece of your life? It's more challenging because you need to find the nuggets of joy and some of the unfortunate, inevitable truths in life sometimes like to take a topic that's very difficult and to do a dramatic piece on it is expected, predictable, mm. you know, like, like I lost my mom in theater school and we were doing all of these scenes that were just like, I was just seeing people like overacting and just really like, I felt that and we had to do a scene where someone was dying of cancer. And I was just like, it was on, it was on the nose. And I think that I was just like, I'm tired of this being seen as like truly inventive because people are just taking themselves really seriously in this. Whereas at that point in my life, I wanted to find joy in amongst 
just one of the most difficult experiences I'd ever had of losing a parent and losing a mother, you know, the person that brought you into this world. Um, and so being able to find ways to talk about it on stage in different ways or being able to explore those ideas and bring laughter and joy and then also be able to foster connection with people who had had a similar experience that felt like they couldn't talk about it. Yeah. That felt so much more rewarding and awesome. And you also are feeling a little bit more elated and a little bit lighter. Like it's like the, the load of that has been lightened as opposed to just like added on to how heavy this is. And so I find that with sketch and now like I found so much solace in, in stand up as well of being able to make like ghost mom jokes and being able to kind of like introduce to the crowd, like this happens, people are grieving. It's, it's, you know, the weirdness that someone might bring in reaction to something like that is your own weirdness because this is just going to happen to everyone. So why can't we just kind of acknowledge it and not like make light, like, like, you know, not make too much light of it, but kind of like you can talk about things surrounding death and grief and people's weirdness about it, draw their attention to like, it's not about you. And like, if your fear is just like, oh, well, talking about death scares me, you know, because death scares me. Sorry. sorry. <laughs> like, but in a, in, and how much unpredictability we've seen over the last couple of years, the only inevitability is death. So yeah. to hear it and refuse to allow people to talk about it, that doesn't fare well for me. And I kind of like really pushing into those, pushing those boundaries of, of what can be talked about in culture. And when you do it with a spoonful of sugar, people seem to respond to it much better. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that, that's been full of sugar. Definitely. Like, uh, is important. I yeah. feel for sure. Thanks, Rena. Amazing. Well, this was so much fun. Thank you so much. Thank you. Did you guess who the saddest little Yankee comedian is based on? I had a second guess and that was wrong too. But I will figure out this mystery. And if you have any ideas, feel free to email me at josh at myfirstsketch.com. Rena Taylor is a member of Joy Provision. You can follow Joy Provision on Instagram at joy.provision. Joy Provision also has a YouTube page, which you should subscribe to so they can get the personalized URL. Rena hosts a weekly stand-up show at Winona Craft Beer Lodge in Toronto called Winona Ride or Die every Thursday night. Tickets are available at eventbrite.ca. And you can follow Rena on Instagram at Reenerdog, R-E-E-N-E-R-D-O-G. Toronto Sketchfest is returning to the digital stage from March 23rd to the 27th with over 100 titles and shows like Sketch and 60, and Sketch Train, which I'll be hosting, and a ton of panels. Tickets and more information can be found at torontosketchfest.com. I know I'll be watching as much as I can because this year they're actually offering on-demand viewing, which is really exciting. Like I said, I'll be hosting Sketch Train during Toronto Sketch Fest on Saturday, March 26th. It's a late-night show, kind of their version of an open mic, which will probably start around 11 p.m. More on that will be revealed in the coming weeks. And Sketchybator will return to the Zoom screens on April 1st at 10 p.m. Head to sketchybator.com if you want to learn more. My First Sketch is a Philly Sketchfest production. You can find out more information at facebook.com slash phlsketchfest. Follow Philly Sketchfest on Instagram at phillysketchfest. The music on this episode is by the band No-No. 
which you can check out at nonoband.bandcamp.com. Like my first sketch on Facebook, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is Josh Hyam. Thanks for listening. Go see some comedy, especially live if you can. Where there's lightning, there's thunder. Where there's trouble, there's Donder. Meet Donder. I'm Donder. A.K.A. Jeff. Maybe we can work together someday. That would be a dream come true. Jeff wants to be a superhero. You got a pen? Uh, uh, yeah, in my fanny pack. But he's not very super. Help! He has one chance to prove himself. My name is Candace. I'm with Nondescript. That's the biggest super agency in the city. But will that be enough? What if I'm not very good at picking teammates? Here's the plan. I punch him. Then I punch him. I'll pull off his penis and punch him in the balls with it. When we put so much into becoming someone we never become, we forget one important thing. I've been chasing one thing for so long, I, I don't even know who I am without it. We never stop becoming. Listen to Tights on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, and Stitcher.